Amen. Lord, we could not even begin to measure your faithfulness, your love, your grace, your mercy toward us. We're so unworthy, and you're such a great God, and we're so blessed. You love us so very much. Lord, I pray right now as we go to your word that you would minister to every single heart that is here. Father, that it would be not the words of men, but your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. So, Lord, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one, or if you need to take it home because you don't have a Bible at home or you like that one better, please feel free to take that as our gift. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we're going to look at, continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. If you've never been here before, here at Calvary Chapel, we just go verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, right through the Bible. And so we looked at first, we looked at the first six chapters so far in 1 Corinthians. I want to encourage you to pray about coming out on Wednesday nights. We're going through Deuteronomy. We looked at chapter 1 last Wednesday. We'll be looking at chapter 2 this Wednesday. It's a great book. You'll be blessed. So we come to chapter 7 here in 1 Corinthians, and as we come to this chapter, we're going to see a little bit of a shift in what's been happening. But I do want to catch you up to give you the context. In the first six chapters, Paul is responding to reports that he had received in regard to the ungodly actions of Corinthian believers. If you'll remember, Corinth was a very wicked place. Corinth was a place that it was involved in idol worship. It was a place filled with Greek philosophers that people followed after. It was a place where it was all about wealth and that people were taking vacations from morality. It was the sin city of the day. And in the midst of that sin city of the day, Paul had planted a church some five years earlier. And they began began to really walk with the Lord, but over time, instead of them having an impact on Corinth, Corinth was having an impact on them. And instead of them being light to a world that so desperately needed the Lord, the world was beginning to cause them to turn away from God. And so he writes this letter, this very practical letter back to them to to encourage them. And one of the first things he talks to them about in the first six chapters, he talks to them about the emptiness of worldly wisdom, the falseness of the teaching of philosophers, the foolishness of following after man, and how serious sin really is. And so he begins by talking about immorality and compromise, and he tells them that they're set apart. You know what, guys? We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Amen? And as born-again new creations in Christ, as believers in Him, we're not to be like the world. Unlike what we hear in some places today that we're to conform more to the world. God's desire is that we be in the world but not of it. And that was his first message to them. Was guys, you're living in a godless place, don't be like them. You're called to be set apart, sanctified unto the Lord. With idol worship going on all around him, he reminded them of the power of the cross. There's only one way, God said, we can get to heaven and Jesus is the only way. Amen? It's the cross of Christ. There is no other path. There's no other hope. There's no other way. All other gods are dead. I don't care how many idols or how many statues you set up. It's a bunch of dead gods. And he was saying, in the midst of idol worship, remember the cross. In the midst of immorality, remember you're called to be set apart. And then in the midst of all the philosophies of men, and people think they're so intelligent. And I have to confess to you, one of the things that, I, that I just really gets on my nerves is when people think they're really smart. You know, people are just arrogantly smart. You ever met people like that? And you think, dude, you're a knucklehead compared to God. You need to understand that, right? The reality is that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And he says to them, the true source of wisdom is not these great orators of philosophy. The true source of wisdom is the Holy Spirit. So this is a very practical letter. He's writing back to them, you're in the world, don't be of it. 
It's not about the idols, it's about the cross. It's not about the wisdom of men, but it's about the wisdom of God that can only come through the Holy Spirit. He then told them how they were to react to sin. If you remember, there was a a man in their church who was living with his mother-in-law. And they just let it go, whatever. You know, hey man, as long as you're here, right? And the Lord said, no, you know, through Paul, it's not to be that way. He said, when sin is in your midst, you need to go to them in love and say, bro, this is wrong. You're not to be living in this kind of a situation. You're outside of God's will. And if they don't receive these, he says, eventually you're to remove them from the body that they might be restored. Church discipline is always to bring restoration. It's God's heart that we would love people enough to set them aside to make them realize how serious what they're doing really is in the eyes of God. And then lastly, last week, we saw that we are to glorify God in our bodies. If you remember, we talked about brothers pursuing each other in Corinth and it grieved the heart of Paul. He said, why are you guys suing each other? First of all, everything we have belongs to who? God, all of it. So my stuff, your stuff, it's all God's stuff. And what was happening was these guys were suing each other and they were taking each other to trial before unbelievers. And it was blowing their testimony. They were saying, see these Christians, they can't even get along with each other. They've got to come to us for help. And we talked about the fact that we are to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Amen? The world has no answers for us. God's word is sufficient. We don't need anything else above and beyond the Bible. This has all the answers. This is the answer book. This is teacher's edition. Amen? Right here. All the answers are in here. And you read God's Word, and this is sufficient, and we don't need to go to man, and we don't need you know, people with degrees in psychology. and psychology. We need the Bible. He's the mighty counselor. He's the one that we turn to. He's where our hope is. And then lastly, last week, we saw that Christian liberty is not a license to sin. You know, because we've been born again, and we've, we've, you know, through the shed blood of Christ, we've been saved, and we've repented of our sin, and we're walking after Him, it doesn't mean now that because we've got the get-out-of-hell-free card in our wallet that we can now just go live like the world. The reality is that liberty is not licensed to sin, that as we follow the Lord, we should have a greater passion to walk in holiness. So those are the first six chapters in a nutshell, and and now it's going to change. Those were uh, reports he got back from the house of Chloe, where the church met, that, hey, you know what? They're getting away from the Lord. They've taken their eyes off of God. Now the rest of the book is going to be where they have asked questions of Paul. Along with the report coming back, there was a list of questions written to Paul. And Paul gives this list of questions, and the rest of 1 Corinthians, he's answering the questions that they have asked of him in regards to their lives. Remember that Paul's been away for about five years. He's their pastor, in a sense. And with all the immorality going on around him, it's real easy just to start becoming like the world. So they write him a, a, a letter. They don't have the completed New Testament like we do today. And they write this letter saying, you know, What are we supposed to do in these circumstances? In chapter 7, as we'll look at today, he's going to deal with marriage and being single. Learning to be content right where you are. In chapters 8 through 10, he's going to talk about Christian liberty. In chapter 11, Christian conduct. In chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, the resurrection of the dead. And finally, in chapter 16, he's going to talk to them about having a heart to give. Now, these are all questions being asked because living in the world, it's very easy for us to start becoming like the world and not even know what we should do. We've all been there. What do I do about this? What would God have me to do? Well, in some ways, it's a blessing to hear the people in Corinth, but at the same time, there's so much compromise going on with them. Now, I had originally planned, just so you guys don't get scared when we're like verse 7 and it's been 30 minutes, I had originally planned on teaching the whole chapter, but when I have 35 pages of notes and I'm only halfway through, it's time to stop, okay? 
So we're going to look at part one of this chapter this week, and we're going to look at part two of this chapter next week, and really the chapter is about godly principles for marriage, divorce, and being single. Now that should cover everybody in the room, right? You're either married or you're single, you're one or the other, if you don't know which one you are, then well, we need to talk after church, okay? The Corinthian believers are living in the midst of sexually immoral and pagan people, a city where sexual depravity and fornication and adultery and homosexuality were commonplace. That sound familiar? Sounds like the place we live. A city whose religious beliefs not only didn't condemn sexual immorality, but encouraged it. Remember that they had temple prostitutes. So literally, they encouraged sexual immorality as a form of worship. It's interesting, I was flipping around and I caught the public access channel. I don't know why I ever stop on that channel because it frustrates me every time I do. But they were talking about how affirming it was to celebrate gay marriage at a bunch of churches here in Santa Cruz County. They all got together and they were celebrating homosexual marriage. Can I tell you right now that God loves all men. And He loves people who are caught up in the sin of homosexuality. But homosexuality is sin. It is not to be affirmed. The Bible rejects it. Amen? And I know in Santa Cruz County that's not popular, but it's not about being popular with men, it's about being faithful to God. And what is happening is he's going to write them this letter about marriage in a city very much like ours. A city that is approving of this sinful, wicked behavior. And he's writing this letter to them to say, no, that's not what marriage is about. What you see going on around you is not the answer, and the things that you think marriage is supposed to be, that's not it either. And, what he's, and what's going to happen is, that in the midst of all these immoral surroundings is there's also been religious debate about marriage. And one of the groups, and we're going to get into the text, but one of the groups was called the Gnostics. You don't need to remember this. There's no test later on this. But the Gnostics were these people, quote, religious philosophers, who took religion and philosophy and put them together, and they believed that the body, everything about the body was evil, and only the spirit was good. And with that in mind, what they said was, Whatever you do with your body is irrelevant, because it just doesn't matter. So if you want to worship God in your spirit and sleep with prostitutes in your body, go for it. And so this was going on with these religious philosophers, and then the, the other part of the Gnostics called the Essenes, these guys, the ascetics, these guys believed that your body was so evil that you should torture yourself. You ever seen people on TV where they're sticking needles through their arms to please God and things like that? You ever seen that before? I believe that's where it originates. So in the midst of all the immorality going on around them, there's these Gnostics, these religious philosophers who are feeding them, and they're like, man, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? So let's begin, and we're going to take a look at God's heart and His plan for marriage, for being single, God's design for, or what does God say about divorce? What does God say about the relationship between a husband and wife? And the first question He responds to Again, the Corinthian believers writing to him seems to indicate that in light of all the trouble that you know, sex outside of marriage and, and the temple prostitution was leading to, that some of them were ask, actually asking him, maybe we should just all be celibate. Even us married people. Maybe all of us are just, because it's such a trap, maybe we should all stop. Well, let's take a look at what God has to say. And in response to that question, he's going to address both the advantages of being single as well as the physical blessings of being married. Verse 1. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now we get a hint of what the question was. They write to him and they're saying something like, is it good that we just be celibate then? Should we just stop? 
You know, look at all the stuff going on around us. Maybe if we just stopped being married and if we just were all celibate, then we wouldn't have these problems anymore. And Paul writes him back and says, you know, it is good that a man not touch a woman. And by the way, if you're single, it is not only good, it is God's command that you not touch a woman. Amen? Keep your hands to yourself. Right? Amen? Word up? Okay. Now I know the reality is that every woman in here, guys, is your sister until she's your wife, so treat her like it. Amen? And gals, every guy in here is your brother until he's your husband, so treat him that way. And so he says that it is good that a man not touch one. And here's the reality. There's so much that goes along with sexual immorality. It will absolutely, you'll take it into your marriage. It is destructive in your walk with God. And you know what? It's not some little thing. Now the world around you tries to tell you, every commercial you see says that's what you need to have. You know what? You just need to get with somebody. You need to hook up, man, then you'll be happy, right? And that's just the way the world talks. And that's what the world says joy comes from. But here we see, he says not to touch. And the word for touch here speaks of physical intimacy. And again, probably a statement they had said. And Paul said, you know, yeah, it is good. If you're single, be pure, be focused on God. That's a good thing. But as we'll see, it's also a gift from God that not everyone is called to be. Some people are called to be single. Most of us are not. And we'll we'll be able to define that calling in a moment. But as someone who is single, as we'll see later on, it is a blessing because one thing a single person has, as we'll see later in the text, is they're not divided in their passions. God says that someone who is single can be totally devoted to God. Not that as a dad I shouldn't be totally devoted to God, but the reality is, as I'm totally devoted to God, I need to minister to my wife and to my children, and it's a blessing. But at the same time, someone who's single can right now say, you know what, I'm called to go to Africa and leave tomorrow. They can say, I'm called to go do this, and they can just go do it. Why? Because they're single and they have that ability to do that. And he's saying that's a good thing. We're going to see later that being single is not a curse. It's a blessing, especially if that's what God has called you to be. But I want you to read on because he wants to make it very clear what God says about the physical relationship between a man and his wife. And by the way, it is limited to a man and his wife. Amen? No one else, That's it. All right. Pretty clear, but people struggle with it today. Look at verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Okay, Because we have these desires, he's saying, look, it doesn't make sense for you all to try to be celibate because you cannot be. Because here's the reality, unless God has given you the gift of being single for a lifetime, God has given you the the desire for your mate, whether you've met them or not, or yet, whether you've met them yet or not, amen? God has given you a desire for them. God has given you a desire to, to have a physical relationship. Now, if you base a relationship only on the physical, you are going to be greatly disappointed. Because you're not in love, you're in lust. Amen? You're not in love, you're in heat, as I like to tell some people. The reality is that love, agape, is selfless, that esteems someone outside of himself greater than himself. Aaron love is all about what can you do for me. It's where we get the word erotic, and it's all physical. But he says here, because of sexual immorality, to save you from sexual immorality, to save you from the temptation that will come, it's good that a husband and a wife be together. Now look at verse 3. And again, they, they suggested that couples might be celibate. Some had even suggested it might be more holy. It's really holy if, if my wife and I just don't touch each other anymore. Man, I'm glad the Bible doesn't say that. Amen? Man, 
Can you imagine? That's, that's just wrong. So here's the reality. Look what it says. You got to understand, too, that God created the physical relationship, and he said it was good. You know, the first time God said something was not good, creation, he creates everything. Day one, good. Day two, good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six. Then finally he says, oh, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good. So God brought Eve to Adam, and he said, oh, this is good. Adam said, oh, this is good, right? (laughs) And so the Bible speaks more of marriage even than the church. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And he brought a helper comparable to him. And you know what? Just as all of our spiritual need is fulfilled in Christ, so all of our physical intimacy should be fulfilled in marriage. And this is God's plan. It's God's heart. It's God's design. God created it. He blesses it. And the intimacy between a husband and wife is a good thing. In Hebrews 13, it says that the marriage bed is undefiled. God blesses it. It's a good thing. Okay? So don't say you're being more holy by, you know, abstaining. No, you're not. You're being, you're, you're being outside of God's will. Now, we're going to see an exception to that in a moment. But physical intimacy, again, is reserved for one man with one woman within the sanctity of marriage. God does not bless, but condemns sex outside of marriage. He condemns it. I don't care if you're engaged. It's sex outside of marriage. Amen? Does it? Can I tell you that God loves you? He knows what's best for you. He's not a no-fun bummer God walking around trying to keep you from having a good time. But He knows what's best for you. Gals, if there's a guy who says that you need to sleep with him to prove you love him, that guy doesn't love you and run quickly away from him. Give him 50 cents and tell him to call me and ask my permission, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's why I tell my daughter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, she's not even be around, guys. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong. Amen? Now, I want to encourage it, because here's the reality. Most people, in this, many people in this room will have already fallen. And they'll say, you know what? what, I already blew it. Here's the good news. Repentance equals restoration. And God has forgiven you if you've asked Him to forgive you. Amen? And you cannot go back and restore, you know, you can't go back and fix the past, but you can start living for Him in the future. Amen? And God is a faithful God. He's faithful and just to forgive us. Now, what does He say about marriage in verse... Three, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. In marriage, instead of a man not to touch a woman, a husband must render to his wife the affection due her. It is wrong to withhold affection from his wife. And I want to say this, it's not just the physical act, but it's all the affection that goes with it. You know what, I love to see and I can tell how a couple is doing just by how they, how they sit next to each other sometimes. You know, some of that affection is, you know, sometimes my wife will just come up and rub the back of my head. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Rub your arm. That, that's affection. Amen? You're my spouse. I love you. I care for you. You're the, you're the other part of me. And that's a blessing in God's eyes. And it's rendering the affection that is due her. Guys, you need to be affectionate toward your wife. You need to be romantic toward your wife. You need to take the time to call her and leave notes for her and send her flowers. And I'm, hey, I'm as guilty as anybody. I need to do more of it. And we need to do more of that. But render the affection that is due her. Now, I want to say this. 
It is wrong to withhold affection, and sadly, too often, affection in a marriage is used like a weapon. And that is not God's highest. You know what? I'm mad at you. Go sleep on the sofa. Right? You know what? You didn't, man, I'm done with you. I'm bitter. You're just not, you're just not, you know, you're not what I wanted you to be. And you know what? The reality is that God's heart grieves over that. Here's God's heart in this. Render means to owe. It's not you owe me, but I owe you. The husband says, I owe you affection. The wife says, I owe you affection. That's marriage in God's eyes. Marriage is not something that, you know, the physical relationship in marriage is not something that just fades away over time or you give up. That's not God's size because, again, when you do that, you are going to invite temptation, as we're going to see here in the next few verses. When you start punishing one another and using that as some kind of a tool in marriage, you're going to see that it will bring heavy-duty destruction. We are to give our wives intimacy. Wives, you're to give to your husbands intimacy. Wife is not to withhold marital affection from her husband, and she is to give him the, the intimacy and the, the relationship he desires in the same both ways, guys. Guys, we need to be the same way. Can I tell you how much marriage counseling I do? I've done it for years, and it's amazing to me how this is so often something that is used as a tool in the midst of, of difficulty. Can I tell you that it's not going to make things better if you do that? It's going to make things worse. It's going to drive a wedge between you and your spouse. Every single time. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Man, that's heavy. Now, the husband and wife yield the authority of their own body to each other. And this should come from a willing heart on each side. And this is not an excuse, guys, to coerce and, you know what, you owe me. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But... Wives, that should be your heart. You know what? I love you. I, I, you know, I, I desire to be. I, that's my heart. And that's God's plan in marriage. Lovingly submitted to fulfilling each other's need for physical affection. Some, no doubt, struggle with this. And you know what? I, I, I find couples that don't even want to have a joint checking account. You know what I mean? They come in and say, yeah, we got our own checking accounts. I'm like, help me out, right? You're one flesh. Amen? If you don't want to share your checking account, you're probably not saying, yeah, he's got authority over my body. It's no problem. Right? That's not going to happen. Yeah, she's, she's in charge of my body. Right? If you won't even give up your checking account, if you, don't, if you walk around, this is my stuff. You know what? Everything you have belongs to both of you. Amen? Especially a lot of times when you're, maybe you're, it's your second marriage, you get married when you're older and you got stuff and they got stuff and this is my stuff and that's your stuff and get rid of all of that. Amen? I even encourage sometimes a couple to get married and they'll move into somebody's house. I say, sell the house and go buy a house that belongs to the two of you. Just because you're going to say, oh, this is mine. I had this house before I met you, right? I've heard that in marriage counseling more times than I can count. Well, it was my house. I mean, my, you know, I, I had it before he came. So it's my stuff, right? Sell it, go buy something that belongs to both of you, amen? Everything you have. So in marriage, my wife and I are one flesh. Your wife, your husband, you guys are one flesh in God's eyes. And so in God's design and God's plan, everything that I have belongs to my wife. Everything my wife has belongs to me and vice versa. Let alone, let, let, let there be that mutual submission. And say, so, you know what, because I love you, all I have. Now look what it says in verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another. The word deprive there is the same word that was used back in chapter 6 for cheat. 
I'm cheating, out, I'm cheating my wife if I do not show affection to her. And again, more than just the physical act, but the romance and the affection, the love. You know, when, when I got married, my dad told me, court your wife all your life. You know, guys, do we, do we try as hard now as we did when we were trying to get him to, like, notice us? Right? We just open doors and send flowers and leave notes on the windshield. and Right? We need to do that again. Amen? And render that affection as doing. But it says, do not deprive. Now, there is one time when you can. And during that time, it says, to go away and to fast and to pray. Now, I want to make it really clear here. How long can you fast? <laughs> yeah, we're just fasting and praying about eight years now. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. I've heard that, right? Trying to be real spiritual about it. No, that's not God's highest. God's design is that a husband and a wife would have physical intimacy in marriage. Because again, I want to say don't withhold because of bitterness, because you're upset over something he or she didn't do. When you deprive them, you're literally, what the Bible says, cheating them of what God has called there to be in marriage. And don't do it because the person isn't as physically attractive as they once were. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on what? The heart. If I hear another husband tell me that his wife has gained too much weight, I'm going to smack him. Dude, what has that got to do with anything? That's not marriage, amen? You didn't marry a Barbie doll, you married your wife. Amen? And you know what? As, you know, I want to be physically attracted to my wife, but my wife should love me for who I am. I should love my wife just as much if she gets in a car accident tomorrow and is disfigured for life, amen? Because we love the person, not the fit. This stuff is passing away, amen? I mean, I had hair when my wife married me. Right? I mean, the reality is that we're not the person. You know, again, if you marry for only the physical, you're going to be disappointed in time. Don't marry because only of the physical. And don't punish. You know what? If you, if, you, know, if you just do some sit-ups or something, man, that will talk. You know, get on a diet. You know, you know, babe, maybe if you went in and had some stuff done to your face. You know, whatever. Are these my, are my hips too big? No, don't, don't. That question, don't ever answer that question. Do I look big in this? No, babe, you look great. <laughs> Withholding physically only through mutual consent to fast and pray. It's not more holy to abstain. And when you do, it should be fasting and praying together. And it's by mutual consent. That's not just you consenting. Well, I'm fasting and praying. So stay away from me. Now, it's mutual <laughs> consent. That's what it says in the text, right? So it's when we both are on the same page. God's highest is that you enjoy and give yourselves to one another. And when you deprive you open yourselves up, as it says in this verse, for temptation. God makes it clear that there is nothing wrong and everything right about sex and marriage. It's good. Over and over and over he says that. But Satan's great strategy is to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to do everything he can to discourage sex within marriage. That's what he wants to do. He wants you so mad at your spouse, you get away from me. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me, right? Satan, yes, right? Because then what happens is temptation follows. When we deprive one another of physical intimacy and affection, you can be sure that the enemy will bring a viable option right along. You know, it's amazing to me. A husband will stop rendering affection to his wife, stop being romantic, stop being loving and affectionate. And sure enough, a co-worker who will start telling your wife how special she is. 
There'll be a coworker or a neighbor or somebody who will start showing affection to your wife that you're not showing. He'll, you know, he may even send her some flowers. I mean, who knows? He may just, you know, he's taking your place because you're not doing it. And Satan loves it, and he knows, and he'll bring that temptation. As soon as you start depriving your spouse, the enemy will be right there waiting. Wives, deprive your husbands out of bitterness to punish him. And I guarantee you, there'll be a secretary or a co-worker that starts telling your husband what a handsome man he is. Boy, you look good today. Boy, you sure are dressed sharp, you know. And, you know, you're, he leaves the house, and you're wearing your, you know, your floppy, dirty whatever you call those things, right? Your slippers and your, you know, your robe and your hair's all tweaked. And he goes to the office and some woman's there been working on herself for three hours. Man, you're looking good today, right? That's the enemy. That's what the enemy will do. And I want to encourage you that, and you know what, I found this in all the years of ministry again, that when there is love and affection and intimacy in the home and Christ is at the center, I've never heard of one case of adultery. Never. Never. When someone commits adultery, it's never, yeah, my wife and I, we love each other. Yeah, there's intimacy in our marriage. Yeah, Christ is at the center. We pray together. We have such a supernatural love for each other. And yeah, I met a secretary. It doesn't happen. It happens when there's division in the marriage. Now, I want to say this. I want to make this really, really clear. If your wife is depriving you, that is not, or does not give you an excuse to go out and have an affair. And it's not an affair. It is what? Adultery. An affair is, you know, a catered affair. No, it's not an affair. It's adultery. And we're not to go out and have adultery. So the reality is that in marriage, it's a good thing. But where there is bitterness and withholding of physical intimacy, adultery run ra- runs rampant. Verse 6. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now what is he con- saying it's a concession? It's a concession that you would fast and pray and withhold from each other for a time. He says, I'm not commanding you to do that. I'm saying that's a concession. That's the only time that there should be a withholding of physical intimacy in your marriage. That's the only time when you fast and pray. And I say that not as a commandment, but as a concession. A lack of physical intimacy in a Christian marriage is outside of God's will. It's an opening for temptation and is a sign of a deeper spiritual problem. That's a fact. The most intimate thing you will do with your spouse is pray with them. One out of every two marriages ends in divorce, and one out of every 1,054 marriages where the husband and wife pray together ends in divorce. You want to drop the divorce rate in your house? Start praying together. Amen? And it will bring intimacy to your marriage. It will bring a greater supernatural love for each other like you've never had before. And when there is a physical standing off, it's always a sign of a spiritual problem. People are not spiritually in love with, you know, ministering to each other and seeking God together and then having problems in in the physical realm of their marriage. This doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't. Now, I want to say now, let's move on and talk about being single. Because some of you are saying, well, this is all great. I'm not married and I haven't met him yet. And thanks a lot. I need to hear this really. Okay, great. Now, you do need to hear it. You do need to hear it because you need to know what you should expect out of marriage. Amen? And need to know what you're looking for in a spouse. Someone who loves God more than you do. Amen? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If someone does not know God and you do, you should not be with them. That's what the Bible says. Why? Because they do not have a love for God, a passion for God like you do. God loves you, and God, desi- God has a godly man for you or a godly woman for you. Amen? Aim high, wait for God's highest. Don't take less than what God has for you. Amen? Now look what he says about being single, though. He says, For I wish that all men were even as myself. 
Now, at this point, Paul is single. Now, there's debate. Paul was probably married at some point because he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the 70, you know, Jewish member, Jewish council. And you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't have any, you know, written facts that he was married, but he probably was. And then people say, what happened to his wife? Well, he was either widowed or it is even possible that his wife left him when he got saved. He said, you know what, dude, you were killing Christians, now you are one? I don't think so, right? I mean, what happened to you? And she could have just left. But the reality is that Paul is now single. And he says, I wish that you were all like me. Why? Because Paul knew that without the distraction, and, and, if, and for someone who's called, it would be a distraction, you know, without the, the divided passions of children and, and a wife, he's able to serve God with his whole heart. Paul would not be able to go out and do the missionary journeys the way he did if he had been married. Now, is, does God elevate being single above being married? No. Does he elevate being married above being single? No. I believe that God, as we will see, God has gifted us all. And he's called us to either be married or to be single. And whatever he's called us to be, we need to do that with our whole heart. Amen? And Paul says, I wish you were even as I am. But each one of us has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. You know what? Being single is cool. It's not a curse. Amen? Can I tell you, I'm just going to share my heart. One of my hearts, I have such a burden for the single people in this church. If you're here and you're single, I have such a burden for you guys. I have such a passion to see us raise up a couple that would oversee a singles group for the people that are, you know, over 18 and single, right? Why? Because I believe there's a place where people who are single should be able to get together. And sometimes I'm, I'm brokenhearted because I feel like sometimes single people feel left out. Hey, if you're married, you make sure single people aren't left out. Amen? Because sometimes they feel awkward. Well, man, it's all married people over there. I just don't fit in. You know what? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. You always fit in. Amen? And so it's my heart. I do have a burden for that. And I know there's a desire to be married. And if that's your desire, then that's the gift God has given you. And that's the calling He has on your life. And He will bring you a spouse in His time. You just serve Him and be faithful and wait for God to bring that man or that woman He's got for you. Amen? But He says here, But if you're as I am, then be content. Look what it says in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. If you're gifted to be single you will be content in being single. And if someone's single and content in being single, you should encourage them and pray for them and bless them, not mock them in any way, amen? Someone says, you know what? I know I'm called to be single. Praise the Lord, that's awesome. Because you can do things in ministry that I cannot. You can do things in ministry that those of us who are married cannot. And praise God for those who are called. It's a good thing to be single. It's not a curse. And the word there for gift is where we get the word for spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a spiritual gift to be called to be single. Just like the gift of pastor, teacher, it's a gift. And God says, I've given you this gift. And both marriage and being single are gift from God, gifts from God, and each needs a gifting from God to work. Amen? Marriage needs a gifting from God for it to be a godly marriage, and being single needs a gifting from God to remain faithful to God in the midst of being single. They're both callings, and they're equal, and we should be blessed at whatever God has called us to do. Be faithful in whichever gift God has given you, verse 9. But if you cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you cannot control your physical desires, it is better to marry. Paul's not saying marriage is less spiritual, but it is a refuge from 
sexual immorality. The Bible says a man who finds a wife finds a what? A good thing. When I found my wife, I found a good thing. A very good thing. Proverbs says that she, you know, she's a treasure far above rubies. We should treasure our spouses. It's a blessing. First time God said something was not good again was when he said it's not good that man should be alone. God loves marriage. But God also loves single people and has a special calling upon their life. And we should not look down upon marriage or look down upon being single. We should just be faithful right where we are to do what God's called us to do. Amen? It's a gift. Either one. Recognize that and serve God. Now we're going to see what God says about divorce. Look at verse 10. This is Paul writing. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, this is real key, because no doubt they had written him a note saying, you know what, we've been born again, we're saved, and I'm married to this unbeliever, now what do I do? And then there were also those who said, you know, well, we've both been saved, and we feel like we'd be better off serving you, Lord, if we were apart from each other. No. He says a man is not to leave, a wife is not to depart from her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But, and if he does leave, or if she does leave, then they are not to remarry. So what is God's heart when it, when it talks about the breaking up first of Christian marriages? What is God's heart? Absolutely not. Do you know that God hates divorce? He hates it. Now, again, you might be here and say, man, I've been divorced twice, three times. Now what? What, what do I do? You don't go back and Deal, you know, you can't go back and fix what happened 25 years ago. You can by praying and asking God to forgive you, and He will. Amen? But you can now start living for the Lord going forward. Amen? And I want to say to you, if you're married, God's design is that you stay married for the rest of your life. Even if the person you're married to isn't saved, you pray for them. Amen? Read on. God's design, not a husband not to divorce his wife, but to the rest. These are to those who are married to someone with an unbeliever. I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that because there's a believer in the marriage that the other person automatically is going to be saved? No. What I do believe is that the Bible's telling us that when one person in the marriage is saved, that the Holy Spirit is brought into the marriage through that person. And I believe that God's highest is that if you're... Now, first of all, you're not to marry an unbeliever. But if you are married, and let's say you're, you get saved, and you're married to an unbeliever now, God's highest is that you remain married. And God's highest is that you live a godly example before your husband or before your wife, that they might see the Lord in you and might be drawn to the Lord by the transformation in your own life. God's design is that we don't give up, we don't quit, but we say, Lord, this is the person you've called me to be with, and I'm going to stay right here. By the way, you know what I found to be true in virtually every case? When someone divorces somebody for, for unbiblical grounds and marries somebody else, they got the same problem the second time. Just follows them wherever they go, because it's a spiritual problem. And so he says that the marriage will be sanctified, it'll be set apart unto the Lord. Why? Because of the believing spouse. And praise God, there's so many people that I know, so many people that I know, where one was saved and one wasn't, and over time, they, the, the unbelieving spouse got saved. And praise God for that. 
But that doesn't mean you should go out and marry an unbeliever. No missionary dating. Amen? Right? Well, she's fine. I'll, I'll take her to church. No. You want someone who loves God as much as you do or more. Amen? Gals, same thing. Unbeliever departs. And look what it says in verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Our brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, if a believing spouse departs, you don't get divorced. But if an unbelieving spouse departs, and they won't come back, and you've done everything you can, they want no part of Christianity, they, they, want, they want to follow the world, then you let them go. Grounds for biblical divorce is adultery and desertion by an unbeliever. Now, forced desertion has been described as abuse or violent harm. If you're married to an unbeliever and he's, just, and he's harming you physically, that's for, he's deserted your marriage. If he's beating on you and harming you and your life is in danger, it's time to leave. Amen? And you know what? It may be that God will call you to be separated and pray for his salvation, but if at some point he, does, he departs and he won't come back to your marriage, then that's biblical grounds for divorce. But that's it. It's adultery and desertion by an unbeliever. Other than that, husband and wife married for a lifetime. And do you know this? Even in cases of adultery, God's highest is restoration. Amen? God's highest is always restoration. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Keep praying. Stay steadfast and obedient. And you know what? You never, God can certainly bring restoration in your marriage. Verse 17. Last portion here. But as God has distributed to each one, you will, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain all the churches. As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. As the Lord has called you, that's how you are to live. No matter what station in life you're in, whether you're married, you're single, you're divorced, you're remarried, you're widowed, God can still work in your life. And God still desires to use you. You've not been disqualified. God still wants to do a work in you. Instead of thinking of what you can or will do when your station changes, walk with the Lord right where you are. If you're single and you know you're called to be married, don't say, when I'm married, I'm going to start serving God. Right? Start serving God and God will bring your spouse in His timing. Amen? Don't wait until, when we start having kids, when, when, my, you know, when this happens, when that happens, don't wait. Serve God now. And what he's saying is, right where you are, be faithful. Don't try to fix your past. You know, repent over it. Then seek God's forgiveness and follow Him with your whole heart. And be faithful right where you are. Verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. If you were called as a Jew, okay, that's your heritage. Start serving God. If you were called as a Gentile, fine, that's your heritage. Start serving God. If you were called as a married person, a single person, a divorced person, or a widowed person, start serving God. What he's saying is be faithful to the calling right where you are. The key is not who and what you were when you came to Christ, but walking in obedience to Him now that you're saved. That's the key. Too often we think, okay, I've been born again, now I've got to go get this fixed. Then I can start serving God. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It's been fixed. You've been forgiven. Amen? And now you can start serving the Lord and following Him. 
Verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you could be made free, rather use it. You know, if you're called when you're a slave, don't try to escape. Serve me right where you're at. While a slave can please God. If he is set free, he also says, if you're set free, then take advantage of that as well. No matter what circumstance you live in, begin to serve God right where you are. May we serve God in no matter what our circumstances are. Verse 22. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. Here's the dynamic of Christianity. Somebody's a slave and they're saved. They're free in Christ. Somebody's free and they've been born again. They're slaves to him. Amen? It doesn't matter what the world says. It's what God says that matters. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are, what position we have, how much power we have, how much authority we have in the world. It's who we are in Christ that matters. Nothing else matters. Now watch this. We're almost done here. Verse 23 and 24, we're going to finish. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, he just said if you're a slave, don't, don't leave your position. Here's what he's talking about. You were bought with a price. How do you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. How valuable are you? You know, salvation is a free gift, but it did not come cheap. Amen? And what was paid for you? Almighty God came to earth lived sinless, perfect life, was an example to us, and then took all of our sin upon himself. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was scourged, and he was crucified because he loves you. That's why he did it. When he hung on the cross, he thought about you by name. He thought about you. You're always on his mind. And he was willing to die that you might have eternal life. You were bought with a great price. And because you were bought with a great price, him and him alone you should serve. Amen? Now, I'm not talking about not being a good employee. We should be that. I'm not talking about not being someone who serves others in the body. We should do that. But who is our master? Jesus Christ and nobody else. He died in our place. His blood was shed that we might have life. And on the third day, he proved himself to be God in that he rose from the dead. Salvation is offered to every man, woman, and child, but it can only be accepted individually. It's offered universally, but you must accept it individually. You know what? Maybe the reason you're struggling this morning in your marriage is one of you doesn't know Jesus. You don't have to leave here without Him. Amen? He loves you. You were paid for with a great price. You are so valuable to God. When the world says you're worthless, remember what Jesus did for you. Remember how much He loves you. Christ paid for us. We belong to Him. And we don't follow men. Remember, they'd fallen into the trap. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Maybe today we'd say, I'm of Calvin, I'm of Luther, I'm of Spurgeon, I'm of Chuck Smith. Calvin didn't die for you. Luther didn't raise from the dead. Spurgeon's not interceding on your behalf, amen? We follow Jesus. He paid the price. He is the one we belong to. He owns us. And I'm glad that I'm His. How about you? Amen? I cannot imagine life without Him. I can't imagine being the son of anything else but His. He's adopted me into His family. I'm a child of the King. My best friend created the universe. And I'm going to spend eternity with Him. Boy, what a peace. And you know what? That impacts my marriage. Amen? That impacts the way I can live as a single person. That impacts me having peace no matter what my circumstances are when I realize the price that's been paid and who I belong to. We can live as we are called when we understand who we belong to. 
And that's His heart, and that's His desire. He alone is our Lord, our Savior, our God, and our King. Verse 24. And He says, Brethren, let each one of you remain with God in the state in which we were called. Don't wait for a change in your age, your education, your address, or your marital status to start, church, to start serving God. Amen? Don't say, as soon as I, you know, if I can get a house paid off and I can serve God, if I can get that, serve Him now. Amen? Serve Him now, right where you are. Colossians 3.11 says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but we are all in Christ. Christ is all and in all. So in closing, too often we look at our circumstances and look for them to change so that we might be happy and be fulfilled. Sometimes we, we look at the sadness of the, the advice that people get. And here's the very practical advice we get here. On marriage, divorce, and being single. God's design is marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime. Amen? God hates divorce. It's the last resort. And among believers, it should never be so. And if you have an unbelieving spouse that leaves, God's highest is still always restoration. Amen? If you're single here, know it's not a curse, it's a blessing. That God has gifted you for the, for the time being and called you to be single and wants to use you right where you are. And you need to know how blessed that is. At the same time, if you know that God's given you a desire to be married, then that's a gift as well, and you wait for the person God has for you. And you don't settle for anything less than God's highest. Aim high. Amen? Say, I, you know what? I want someone who loves Jesus, man, so much, they just, they're glowing in the dark. Okay, that's it. Pray for that. Amen? Man, I just want someone who's so on fire for God. You know what? God will, I believe God will answer that prayer, and don't settle for anything less. Don't, don't get that checklist out. Well, he's saved. That's good enough. You went to church on Easter, there it is, okay, right? No, you want someone who loves God more than you do. Women especially, you want a man who can be the spiritual leader in your home, amen? You do not want to marry somebody you got to drag to church on Sunday. Come on, man, wake up, we got to, no, you don't want that. You want somebody who's praying with your kids. You want someone who is going to open up and initiate prayer with you and spend time in the Word and be somebody who's like-minded in ministry. That's not going to happen if you settle for less than God's highest. I believe the greatest key to having a loving and affectionate marriage is learning to be content and viewing whatever state we're in as a blessing. Look at your wife, look at your spouse, and say, this is a gift. You are a gift to me. You're a gift. You're a blessing. I praise God for you. Don't try to change your spouse all the time. Don't tell them how they need to do something different. Say, you know what? You serve them and love them. Amen? And be an example to them. That's God's will. That's God's highest. It's serving the right master when we walk with the Lord. It's His design. It's His heart. And you know what? He is our Savior, but He's also our Lord. And I want to close with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Can I tell you that everything you've been looking for in life is wrapped up in Him? Amen? It's not a career. It's not more money. It's not more stuff. It's the Lord. You need Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to be content in your current circumstances. Follow Jesus with your whole heart. Give Him your life. Be baptized with His Spirit. And you will supernaturally love your spouse, serve your boss, and be content right where you are. Amen? That's what needs to change. It's a spiritual problem. There's problems in your marriage. It's spirit, it starts spiritually. You guys get right with God and start loving each other. All that other stuff will take care of itself. People think it's flipped. Well, I need to talk. No, God's word is enough. It is sufficient. It will transform your life. And again, if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord. It's very simple. He suffered and died that you might have eternal life. 
All we, what we must do is confess Him as Savior, ask Him to forgive us for our sins. The word is repent. It means to turn away from the person I used to be and to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I give my life to you. That's where hope is found. Lord, I confess my sin. I want you to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. I want to give you the, the throne of my life and serve you with my whole heart. That's what being a Christian is. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Amen? It's confessing, and that's it. You're saved, and you're going to heaven, and your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Bible says that all the angels in heaven rejoice when even one comes to know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example for marriage and for being single and your, your heart toward divorce. And Father, I pray for every marriage in this room. Lord, that you would be the spiritual head of every marriage. Father, help every man to be the spiritual leader in his home, to love his wife, to serve his wife, to lay down his life for her, to render the affection that is due to her. Lord, I pray for every wife, that she would be that perfect helper, that helpmate you've called her to be. I pray for her that she would render the affection due to her husband. Lord, that they would have a supernatural love for you and a supernatural love for each other. Lord, I pray there would be agape, selfless love. Lord, I pray for the single people in the room right now. Lord, I pray if it's the gift that you've given them to be single all their lives, that they would rejoice in it and use that as an opportunity to do ministry for your kingdom. Lord, if their gift is singleness for now and they desire to be married, I pray you give them patience. I pray you give them contentment and singleness right now as they continue to wait for the person you have for them. I pray you'd put a hedge of thorns of protection around their, their physical life that they would not fall into temptation, but they would wait for your highest. Lord, I pray for those who are, who've been divorced, who've gone through difficulty in the past, that they would know that when they come to you, that you will forgive them and restore them. Lord, I pray for marriages where there may be separation or struggles even now. I pray for restoration in those marriages, Lord. Father, that you might be glorified. Lord, lastly, I want to pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. Lord, that they would not walk out of here without given their lives to you. They would realize that you desire to have that intimate fellowship with them. Father, they would simply come to you and say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Make me a new creation. They will know that, Father God, when they just come with a confessing heart and a desire to make you Lord of their lives, that, Lord, you will come and your Holy Spirit will live inside of them and they can walk with you. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. Empower us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to have the marriages and the single walks you desire us to have. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship.